0: All right, well, we are going to jump right in today and um, in Numbers, in the book of Numbers. We left off uh, in the book of Numbers with a prophet named Balaam who was brought in to curse Israel. And instead of cursing Israel, he ends up three times blessing Israel with a promise in his final blessing of one who would arise from Jacob That shall exercise dominion. And of course, we believe that is pointing to Jesus Christ. So, the whole book of Numbers, just kind of a brief refresher, is um, a book of transition because we're transitioning from the generation that came out of Egypt and we're transitioning to the generation that is going to enter the promised land. And the reason we have this transition is because the generation that came out of Egypt did not believe God's promises, did not believe God's word, rebelled and rejected essentially the promised land. When 12 spies were sent into the land and they come back and 10 of them had a negative report saying, you know, there's no way we can conquer it and overcome it. The people listened to the negative report of the 10 spies. And because they listened to the negative report of the 10 spies, ultimately, essentially giving up own God's promise to them. And this caused God to pronounce a judgment upon a whole generation of people, the ones that came out of Egypt, the ones that saw God's hand, the ones that watched Yahweh defeat all of the gods of Egypt and deliver his people out of Pharaoh and parted the Red Sea and gave them the law and showed himself in might and power. This generation hardened their hearts, they gave into unbelief, They did not believe God's word. And therefore, God had to judge that generation by not allowing them to enter the land that he had promised. So it was said that that they would die in the wilderness. And thus, we went on a, a journey, or we're in a journey, of 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness. However, last time we were together, we saw that these years are coming to an end, with the death of Miriam, with the death of Aaron, with Moses rebelling himself against God and suffering the same fate that the generation would, that Moses himself would not be able to lead the people into the promised land or enter it himself. So we see this whole generation and even its leaders coming to an end, but a new generation arising out. Um, With this promise of a new generation, God is giving them hope. We saw victories that they have, and we see this prophet Balaam, who again is sent in to curse Israel, is now blessing Israel. So this sets up this kind of two sides of this coin. And the two sides of this coin is Israel's rebellion against God, their constant rebellion against God. For what we've read in numbers so far is just one rebellion after another, one judgment after another, and then the judgment is ultimately averted. God spares people. So it's Israel's constant rebellion. But on the other side of the coin is God's faithfulness to his covenant. And this all goes back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, that he would make a great nation out of Abraham. He would give them a land of promise and ultimately, he would bless the world through them. Well, he's made a great people out of them. He's made a great nation. Now we're trying to get to the land in order that all nations can be blessed. But Israel's rebellion keeps popping up. Israel can't get out of their own way. God has set, uh, he's set sacrifices. He's set laws in place for them to follow, for them to be holy, for them to be pure, but they keep breaking the law, they keep rebelling. But yet, God is still being faithful to his promises. And even though God brings individual and group judgments upon his people in their rebellion, he still keeps his promise to the whole. So even though one generation will not experience the promised land, God says, I'm still not giving up my promise. We'll just wait for a new generation to rise up, and they will enter the promised land. So that's where we stand here, uh, beginning in chapter 25 of Numbers. We are going to see the the final uh, rebellion that's going to totally eliminate the previous generation that came out of Egypt, and we're going to see a new beginning. And this new beginning is marked with a new census, a new numbering of the people, and then laws and preparations and victory as they enter the promised land. So, Numbers 24, we saw Balaam is giving these blessing prophecies now to Israel. But while Balaam is giving these blessing prophecies up on the mountain, camped out uh, here in, in the plains of Moab, Israel is going to rebel in a big way again. So what we see in chapter 25 is national apostasy which brings an end to the old generation. While God's words are being proclaimed by Balaam on the mountain overlooking the plains of Moab, down on the plains the Israelites are intermingling with daughters with the daughters of Moab and going after other gods. Now, we've seen before that this is the biggest no-no that God has given to Israel. You do not mix with other nations, and you do not worship their pagan gods. You shall have, in the the Ten Commandments, and the Decalogue, you shall have no other gods before me. So, all the laws that God gave Israel... Again, we saw where laws that were differentiating Israel from the surrounding pagan nations around them, worshiping their pagan gods. So everything is about staying pure and true and dedicated to one God, Yahweh, one God. And so what happens here in chapter 25 is that the people began to intermingle with the daughters of Moab, with the women of Moab. And you see in chapter 25, verses one and two, the people began uh, to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice to their gods. So as they're intermingling with the women of Moab, they're sacrificing to the gods of Moab. The people ate and they bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal or Baal, which is just a more proper pronunciation but I'll do the American Southern translation, Baal, uh, linked themselves to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. So Baal was the chief Canaanite god. Um, and it's kind of the nations of Canaan and the surrounding nations had what would kind of be a uh, you know, their own version of Baal and their own worship of Baal, where the people here they, uh, of Moab, they were worshiping Baal of Peor. And as the people, as the men intermingled with the women, as they began to sacrifice to their gods, as they began to eat and bow down to their gods, it says here that Israel yoked himself to Baal, breaking the first commandment, breaking the whole reason that God called his people out the whole reason he showed himself mightier than the gods of Egypt, the whole reason he gave them the law is so that they would be a people dedicated to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. But we see here that now they have broken that. And this is very reminiscent of the episode that we had back in Exodus when the people of Israel, when Moses was up on the mountain, so we have a prophet, Balaam, he's up on the mountain And he's blessing Israel. We saw Moses in Exodus. He's up on the mountain receiving the law. While Moses is receiving the law, the people are making a golden calf. And they're worshiping the golden calf. And they're sacrificing and having a covenant meal with this golden calf. And that sparks the anger of God. And we see a scene very reminiscent here in Numbers 25 where you have the prophet through God's grace against the prophet and against Balak's own intentions, which is to curse Israel, through God's grace, he's now blessing Israel. But Israel is down in the plains rebelling against God. And this angers God. And what happens is God's judgment comes upon the people. Um, So the anger of the Lord was kindled. And the Lord said to Moses, take the chiefs of the people, Hang them in the sun before the Lord, and the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. Again, this is keeping the purity of God's holy people. And so the people of Israel brought, the Canaan, uh, brought a Midianite woman to his family, in the sight of Moses. And then in verse number seven, man named Phineas. Phineas here being the son of Eleazar, who is now the high priest, who was the son of Aaron. Phineas sees this man of Israel bringing this Canaanite woman into his tent and into his family. And then he sees it, and he takes a spear in his hand, he goes after the man and the woman, pierces both of them, the man and the woman of Israel through the belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. So Phineas, in his zeal for God, being next in line for the priesthood, he sees this evil that is being done in the camp, even as God's anger has already been kindled against the nation. So Phineas, in his zeal for God, goes and avenges God's holiness by putting to death these who are still, still determined to rebel against God. And then in verse number 10, the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel. For he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, behold, I will give to him my covenant of peace, and in him there will be a covenant of a perpetual priesthood. Very similar to what happened at the giving of the the law when the people rebelled and made the golden calf as the tribe of levi goes through and avenges god's holiness and god calls them to be his special priests so the same thing happens here so there are parallels as we see on our paper here there are parallels between exodus 32 and numbers 25 the people sacrifice the other gods in both instances one to a golden calf one to baal We have the killing of the apostates demanded, both in Exodus 32 and Numbers 25. Then in Exodus, we have the Levites' status that is enhanced because they are avenging the holiness of God. And then in Numbers, you have Phineas, who is the son of Eleazar the priest. His status is enhanced. And again, God reaffirms the covenant through Aaron for the priesthood in Numbers 25. And then you have the plague upon the people. And uh, the plague upon the people, uh, we have here in verse number 9 that we saw, where at the end, 24,000 people died here. Um, 24,000 people died. Thus, essentially, um, ending the old generation with this act of rebellion which mirrors their first major act of rebellion in Exodus chapter 32, where they begin to see what happens when they break the laws of Yahweh. So these parallels suggest that the people have learned very little from their previous mistakes, but perhaps there's a glimmer of hope in that Aaron was a ringleader in the golden calf episode, but his grandson Phineas is exemplary in his loyalty to Yahweh in the plains of Moab. So with the end of chapter 25, we essentially come to the end of that old generation. And the beginning of the new generation begins in chapter 26 with another census. So 26 verse 1 says, After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and Eleazar, the son of Aaron, take a census of all the congregation of the people, 20 years old and upward, by their father's houses, all in Israel, who are able to go to war. And then what we have is the numbering of the people again with all of the tribes. When you get down to verse 51 of chapter 26, in chapter 51 of Numbers 26, the list of the people of Israel is now 601,730. So we come to the final number, which is not too far off from the previous census of the previous generation. But then here's what happens with this census, because now we've entered the new generation. Now we're looking ahead to the promised land. And there's a lot of business that has to be taken care of before we now enter into the promised land. So the first business is how do we go from this this traveling band of people that travel with a tabernacle to a settled people in a large land? If you remember, the construct of the camp is you had the tabernacle in the middle, and then you had the, 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 the priests that would basically be a barrier between the people and the tabernacle, and then you had the people surrounding it. Well, that's how they camped. Well, now what's going to happen when you're in a large land and you have to settle in the land? Well, we're going to take the land and we're going to divide the land up into the different tribes, and each tribe will receive an inheritance of the land. So in verse 52, the Lord spake to Moses, saying, right after the census, "...among these the land shall be divided for inheritance according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance. To a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to the list." And then it goes on to give the list of the Levites as well. Um, Verse 63, if you go down to Numbers 26, 63, these are those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest. Verse 64 says, But among these there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. Notice that. There is not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron in the first census. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb and Joshua. So there's where we find in this new census, this new generation, the whole of the old generation, save Joshua and Caleb, are now dead. They have died in the wilderness under the judgment of Yahweh for not believing his promise to enter into the land. So if that generation wouldn't enter into the land, God was willing to let them die in the wilderness so that a new generation would rise up and they would be the ones to now enter into the land. So this is the new census. This is the second census. This is the new generation. To which, number one, the tribes would be divided. Um among the land. So again, God is still faithful to his promise because we're still going forward. Just because a whole generation rebelled does not mean it cancels out God's promises. God will continue to be faithful to his covenant that he made with Abraham. As we move into chapter 27, uh, we have a question um, by the daughter's um, of Zelophehad, and the daughters of Zelophehad, you know, their father died. Um, he died for his own sin. He did not die with the uh, those others that died in the wilderness, but he had no sons. So the question is going to arise, if a man had no son, I you know what will happen to his inheritance. And the daughters here ask for their father's inheritance because he had no son. Um, Moses uh, inquires of the Lord, and the Lord affirms that, yes, the daughters of Zelophiad are right, you shall give them a possession of an inheritance uh, among their fathers' brothers and transfer the inheritance of their fathers to them. So again, th- these are, again, issues that are looking ahead to what's going to happen when they are in the promised land. So there's questions about the land that is now being answered. Then when you go to chapter 27 verse 12, this reiterates the totality of the old generation gone, because God reaffirms here to Moses that your time, Moses, is drawing near. Uh, he says in verse number 12 of Numbers 27, the Lord said to Moses, go up. Now, this is kind of a sad thing to me. I mean, Moses, he, he's, 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 he's tried his best. You know, he's, he's really done a great job. But to me, here's what, so I can almost picture this and kind of get emotional when thinking about it. The Lord says to Moses in verse 12 of Numbers 27, go up into this mountain of Abraham and see the land that I've given to this people. God brings him to the very edge. And he says, go up to the mountain and just look. This is what you've been living for your whole life. This is what you've been working for. Now, God at least should have let him take a foot in after putting up with all these rebellious people for all these years. It's like, God, give me something. Can I camp one night in the land? I've had to put up with all these people for so long, but yet because of Moses' act of rebellion, he suffers the same as the previous generation. But at least God, you can say, at least God does this for Moses. Go up to this mountain of Abraham and see the land that I've given to this people. And when you have seen it, you also will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. So he reminds him, before you you go, I'm going to let you see the land. Again, affirming to Moses, I'm still going to be faithful to my word. Still going to be faithful. That land you see, it's not a failure. I'm going to bring the people in. I want you to see it. You're standing here at it. I want you to go up on the mountain and look at it. That's the land I'm going to give to the people. Moses will not be the one to bring them in there, but yet there will be one who does. So in verse 15, Moses speaks to the Lord and says, Let the Lord, the God of spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Verse 18, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight." You shall invest him with some of your authority that the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. So that's what they did. They took Joshua. They stood him before Eleazar and the congregation. Moses lays his hands upon Joshua and commissions him as the Lord commanded. So here we see this, this preview of the, this, this transfer of power before the congregation. That even though Moses, who has been the one since Egypt to lead the people now there's going to be a new leader for a new generation. The new leader for a new generation is going to be Joshua. So Moses gives Joshua authority even before the people, that the people may see that, yes, Joshua will have the same authority that Moses did, that he will be the one to lead them into the promised land. So as you can see just in, in, with the census, with the dividing of the land with the questions about, hey, you know, who's going to get the land if a man has no son? And then Joshua, God's promises are still sure. Then we go through chapters 28 and 29. And in 28 and 29 are offerings and feast days. Offerings and feast days. Um, the offerings, there's going to be daily offerings. There's going to be Sabbath offerings. There's going to be monthly offerings And then there's going to be special offerings that are the offerings of the feast days that were established back in Leviticus. We see here Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast uh, of Booths. So in essence, what's happening here is, again, when you're camped out in the wilderness, you're in a camp, you have the Levites, you have the priest, you have the offerings here. But what happens when they get in the land? They can all remember God because they're all camped together. They're all given instruction. But how, when they get into the land and they're spread out, how are they going to remember God? How are they going to remember to worship? How are they going to remember to stay faithful? How are they going to remember to stay pure? How are they going to remember to stay consecrated from the other nations? They're going to do this through these offerings, daily offerings, weekly offerings, monthly offerings and then these special days that God has called them to be and that so instead of instead of just a a holy space that governs their worship it's these holy days that now govern their worship and then of course three times a year they would have to make a a trek down or to Jerusalem in order to sacrifice there at the feast of passover pentecost and tabernacle. So coming into the land means keeping these holy days. So instead of the holy space that they have with the tabernacle, now they're going to have these holy times and these holy days that they have to sacrifice and remember God. Um, and I have, have down here on the paper near the bottom of the uh, land and holy festival section, it says here in a single year, the priest should offer uh, 113 bulls, 32 rams, 1,086 lambs, a ton of flour, thousand bottles of wine and oil, uh, These laws, like those in Numbers 15, are implicit promise of entry into the land and great prosperity in the land. So these continual offerings means God is continually going to supply all that they need in their food and their animals, uh, and it shows the blessing of the land. So chapters 28 and 29 deal with what's happening in the land. Chapter 30 uh, deals with rules on vows. Um, We talked about vows in Leviticus. Um, vows are something you make before god that you are bound to keep uh, specifically here we have what happens with women and vows you know because these men will be coming up to worship bringing their wives or their daughters and their family if a, what if what if a wife makes a vow you know is she intended to to keep the vow um, so we have the rules on vows uh, that are here Uh, In chapter 31, now we are going back toward um, not holy days or holy space, but holy war is what we're talking about in chapter 31. So after dealing with some of these issues about the land after the second census, now we go back to avenging God's holiness upon the Midianites. So in chapter 31 after the national apostasy that we just saw, where the men of Israel intermingle with the women uh, here and uh, of the Midian Moabites and gave themselves to their gods, God hasn't forgotten the Midianites. And so in chapter 31, verse 1, the Lord speaks to Moses saying, avenge the people of Israel on the Midianites. Afterwards, you shall be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people saying, Arm men from among you for the war, that they may go against Midian to execute the Lord's vengeance on Midian. You shall send a 1,000 from each of the tribes. So they're sending 12,000 armed men for war. They go with Phinehas. And in verse 7, they war against Midian as the Lord commanded and killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian. There were five kings of Midian. And they also killed Balaam, son of Peor. So there's Balaam's death. Verse 9, And the people of Israel took captive the women of Midian and their little ones. And they took a plunder of the cattle, the flocks, and the good. All their cities they burned with fire. They took the spool of the plunder, both man and beast. Then they brought the captives and the plunder and the spool to Moses and Eleazar. So God avenges here the people of Israel against Midian for the part the Midianites played in the national apostasy as they go. And this, and this war here is a preview of what's to come when they have to go and conquer the promised land. And so they utterly destroy the wicked nation of Midian here with their kings and their cities. As they bring the women back, though, And Moses sees them bringing, now you've got all these 12,000 men, and not one man dies in Israel. Uh, So you have God protecting his people in this war where not one man dies. But the problem was that the people of Israel intermingled with the women of, of Midian. And what we see here is that what are these men doing? They're bringing back all of the women of Midian. Moses foresees this could be an issue. So he says in verse 14, Moses was angry with the officers. And in verse 15, he says, why have you let the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice uh, cause the people of Israel to act treacherously. He's like, it's the women that cause the men to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. He says, kill every male among the little ones. Kill every woman who has known man by lying with him. But the young girls who have not known, keep them alive for yourselves, and camp outside the camp for seven days. For now, because these men have gone to war, so you've got a couple of issues here. Um, you've got the issue of, you know, it's these women that ultimately came, and and, and and the view here of Moses calls these men to rebel against God, the Israelites to rebel against God. Um, so they are to be put to death. And But because there's war and because there's death, um, now these men are seen as unclean. For as we learned in Leviticus, uh, to come in contact with a dead body is to become unclean. So they are to now camp outside of the camp for seven days until that they are cleansed and go through this ritualistic cleansing process. So um, God avenges on the Midianites here and Israel, and the important part is Israel gains a victory. And so this new generation, they ultimately see that God is with them. They ultimately see that God has given them victory. They ultimately see that God has protected them. Um, And so that's a first taste of what's going to happen when they come into the promised land. Um, Moving into chapter 32, um, we have more issues of settlement. Uh, Reuben and Gad, who raise livestock, they ultimately see the place that they are staying at is a good place to raise livestock. So they go to Moses and Eleazar and they ask, I know we're supposed to go into the promised land and set up camp, he says, but this land is a good land for us. Um, Can we camp on this side of the Jordan, what's called the Transjordan, can we camp on this side of the Jordan and raise our livestock here? So you have the tribe of uh, Gad and Reuben and then the half-tribe of Manasseh. And at first Moses is like, I don't think this is a good idea. Because what's going to happen, you're going to camp out here on this side of the Jordan, and you're going to have your life, and you're going to forget us. And the rest of your brothers, they're going go to go into the land, and they're going to fight, and they're going to try to overcome, but you're going to take it easy out here. But when Reuben and Gad assure Moses, no, our men will go into the promised land, we will fight, and we will not rest until the enemies are defeated. You know, then we will come back over into Ireland and settle. So once they uh, affirmed that, then Moses, you know, gave the people permission to settle on in the Transjordan on the east side of the Jordan River. So you have these tribes that are now settling on the east side, but yet promised they would go in and help their brothers fight on the other side. Uh, In chapter 33 um, is a retelling of the story. or or retelling of the journey. Um, And it's marked by uh, the people of Israel set out and the people of Israel camped. So if you want to go on a a camping trip uh, with Israel and go back on their camping trip, this is the chapter for you. Uh, You can see the places they came to, the places they set out from, and then the places that they camped in. Um, Also here they have, um, you know, coming out of Egypt, they have camping at the Red Sea where God brought them through the Red Sea. They have the giving of the law. So chapter 33 is a retelling. A retelling for a new generation. Because remember, this generation is 20 years old. There, there's, the previous generation died. These, this generation didn't come out of Egypt. This generation was not at Mount Sinai. This was a new generation. So they're recounting the journey um, here of their ancestors. Then in chapter 33, look down in verse number 50. In verse 50, after they've recounted the journey, in chapter thirty-three fifty, 50, the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, you shall drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places where they worship their gods. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by lot according to your clans. That was the previous census. To a large tribe, you shall give a large inheritance. To a small tribe, you shall give a small inheritance. So God is giving instruction. Drive out the people. Totally drive them out. Divide up the land. Um, Verse 55 says, here's the warning that God gives to the people. The warning is this. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them who you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes, and thorns in your side and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell and I will do to you as I thought to do to them so this is a very important statement that God is making and a very important warning again this is all about God Yahweh's chosen people that are to be pure and holy and separate and called out from the surrounding Canaanite nations. So he says, when you go in, utterly drive them out so you'll never have to deal with them. He says, if you don't drive them out, then they are going to be thorns in your side. They are going to be trouble for you in many ways. Trouble in making war, trouble in a spiritual way with you intermingling with them, trouble with with you being influenced by their gods. He says, so if you are not careful to drive them out, and if you let them remain, they're going to be trouble to you, and it's ultimately going to cost you, Israel, because I'll have to end up, you'll break the covenant, you'll break the laws, so you'll have to end up suffering the curse of the law, and I will have to do to you what I intend to do to them, in essence, drive you out of the land. I'll have to drive you, Israel, out of the land, just like I intend for them to be driven out of the land. So this is a dire warning, but it's also a foreshadowing of what's going to happen. For they're not going to do everything the Lord says. They are going to rebel against God. They are going to have many downfalls and pitfalls. And ultimately, spoiler alert, they are going to be driven out of the land by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. So this is a warning that God gives. But again, just like we've seen previously, it's a warning that's going to be broken. It's a warning that's going to be broken. So that's a key phrase in going forward long-term. Chapter 34 gives the boundaries of the land uh, from the north, south, east, and west, the boundaries of the land that God has promised them, Uh, the list of the tribal chiefs in the land, And then in chapter 35, we have the um, uh, cities for the Levites. Um, Because the tribe of Levi doesn't get a portion of land themselves, because they're separated as priests, each tribe is supposed to give a small portion of their land for some of the Levites. Because you remember in holy space, in the camp, the Levites were around the tabernacle to protect the people. Well, here there's no tabernacle, you're spread out. So there'll be some Levites in every place. So the tribes are supposed to give a small portion of a land to those who are uh, in the Levites. Then, as along with the cities for the Levites, there's what's called cities of refuge. And cities of refuge are for those who might have caused a death resulting from an accident. You know, we might call it manslaughter. There's, there's murder, intentional death, and there's death that's caused for an accident. Well, the, the, the theory goes, if, uh, if I accidentally caused the death of your brother, uh, then you are naturally going to come after me for my life, even though it was an accident. Well, I'm supposed to have a fair trial and then sentenced, you know, based on what happened. Well, in order to protect the person that caused this accidental death, in order to protect them uh, from vengeance, there were cities of refuge set up. There were cities that they could go to that they would find protection until the time that they can go and stand before um, the congregation for uh, judgment. We see this here in chapter, 20, chapter 35, verse number 11. Then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The cities shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation of the Lord. Um, The end of verse 15 says that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. So again, this is preparation for what's going to happen when they go into the land. And for Israel, this is a good thing because it shows that they are going to get into the land, that this is going to happen. So these are all cities of refuge, cities for Levites, boundaries of the land, driving out inhabitants. This is all preparation um, for the people. And then it tells what to do uh, with those who do shed blood. For remember, any shedding of blood brings uncleanness. So that's the rest of chapter 35. Um, it talks about you know the murderer and the murderer being put to death. Um, in verse 34 of chapter 35, the last verse of that chapter, says, You shall not defile the land in which I give you to live, in the midst of which I dwell. For I, the Lord, dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So you shall extract justice upon those who shed blood, because shedding of blood brings death, death brings pollution and uncleanness, and they are to not defile the land in which they live, so there will be a system of Justice. Um, To end the book of Numbers is chapter 36, which we are um, reintroduced uh, to the ladies that we were introduced to earlier of of Zelophead. If you remember, they're the ones that said, What happens to the land of our father, our inheritance, because he has no son? Um, Then the question is, and this is, I mean, it's kind of an unusual way to end Numbers, but Numbers just kind of ends this way, asking the question. What happens if the, the women who gain an inheritance marry other men from other tribes? Uh, then will their, will their tribe take over the land that the daughters have for an inheritance? And so it's set out here, the rule in the land to let these women only marry those within their clan. So they have to marry their own family. Uh, why? Because there was a distinct division of the land and if they're intermarrying these tribes, and then they're taking other tribes or taking other tribes' land for inheritance, things can get muddy in a hurry. Uh, so to keep that from happening, uh, in chapter 36, verse number 6, the Lord commands the daughters of Zelophead, let them marry who they think is best. Only they shall marry within the clan of the tribe of their father. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe's father. So, no transferring of land through marriage. Verse number nine says, So, no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold to its own inheritance. Um, verse number twelve they were married to into the clans of the people of Manasseh and the sons of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's clan. So these ladies who had this question, they ended up obeying God and marrying those within their tribe. Um, so as you can see, there's a lot of these little family issues that they're dealing with here. You know, it's like we're moving into a new house. You're going to get this room. You're going to get that room. You know, and, and you, know, you can't, take things from their room, you know, there, there's an order to what God is doing um, that shows, number one, their obedience to God, that they're going to obey His Word, uh, that there are going to be that distinct separate people, that it's going to be governed by law and rules, and it's going to be governed in, by justice, and we're going to see more of that as we enter into the book of Deuteronomy. So just take from, I know there's, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in Numbers, um, but just remember Numbers is marked by, Israel's rebellion, but yet Israel's rebellion doesn't cancel out God's faithfulness to his whole covenant. Even when there's acts of individual or corporate justice and judgment, God is still faithful to the overall covenant that he's made with Abraham. So, as we've seen, Moses' days are coming to an end. Deuteronomy is going to be. Moses' swan song. It's it's, it's his final words that he's giving to this new generation. It's a reiteration of the laws that have previously been given. He's going to reiterate these laws to this new generation. So next week, we will introduce the book of Deuteronomy, uh, talk about what's going on in there. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, that brings us to the end of the first five books of the Bible, the end of the Pentateuch. So we're following along this story here. We're seeing we're now at the cusp of the promised land, and uh, we'll pick back up in Deuteronomy.